Welcome into Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. We've got a busy show for you. We'll jump right into it. A statewide commission is working to improve the climate and culture in Missouri's K-12 through public schools. Lisa Nelson has more. Mark Walker with the Missouri Blue Ribbon Commission. It deals with teacher recruitment and retention here in Missouri. Back to talk about this next phase of recruitment, and that's perspectives from the field on school culture and climate. We have a bunch of leaders here today to talk about this topic. Talk to me about why the Blue Ribbon Commission is focusing on this now. Well, we did some great work last year on um, you know, kind of what are those first steps we need to take for improving recruitment and retention for teachers. And that a lot of that had to deal with salary and just some of the um, real um, uh, inability to meet the marketplace demands to keep a, a, a rich culture of, of, um, and strong pipeline of, of future teachers. We also know that the culture and climate of a school district, a school classroom, um, makes a huge difference in whether a teacher really wants to stay for multiple years, whether they want to make a career out of it. Um, we heard today how influential the leaders are inside each of those um, administrative functions. You know, um, teachers will rally behind quality leaders. Um, and they know quality leaders are going to make a difference in how that school is going to function and how the, the teacher is going to be supported. Uh, we heard a lot about how a support system makes a world of difference for uh, people in whatever profession they're in, but particularly in teaching. You know, I thought it was really good to hear from the administrators today because we've heard a lot from the teachers when we're talking about te teacher recruitment and retention. Some of the challenges that the administrators have to deal with, I think um, those need to be highlighted as well. So I think I think that was important. Were there any messages that you heard today that are just so incredibly memorable to you that you think um, the public needs to know about? Well, I, first of all, I, th I think they need to be reminded that um, administrators, our leaders in our schools, are stretched as thin as our teachers are. Okay, that was a big aha for a lot of us. Um, and uh, we know that they uh, have so much to do with the effectiveness of a school. Um, so, so where are we able to put resources? We also heard that when the resources are in place and the systems within the schools are operating functionally, great things are happening inside these schools. And so how do we replicate uh, those models, those, those uh, uh, cultures, if, if you will? And um, it, a lot of it comes back to resources. Uh, so we need to kind of figure out how, how we do that. But um, um, And we also heard that there's transitions happening in the types of support that teachers need in classrooms. So that's a big aha for me too. Behavioral instructional leaders, instructional coaching and training, um, additional training for principals uh, and, and, uh, and other leaders. And so, so where are things that are, are fairly easy to implement? Where are those things that we're not doing that we should be able to get those in place. And um, we can make some pretty good gains pretty quickly in those areas, we think. Okay, some of the comments I heard today, my takeaways. 
Parents are lost when dealing with behaviorally challenged students. They need more than we can give. Students must have the right environment to be able to learn. We're at a breaking point. That lip service is not enough. We keep talking about it not and not taking actions to make it better. I don't think career ladder is going to be implemented as much as some might think. And um, a superintendent said so much money is being spent um, on individualized education for special needs students. And Missouri needs more of the untraditional school positions. We were talking about the behavioral uh, interventionalists and maybe additional partnering with nonprofits. These were some of the things I heard today that really kind of, it was whoa for me, you know, whoa, wow. Um, where does your head go when you heard some of these things? Yeah, well, um, I think my heart leaps out with, oh my goodness, what are we having to deal with inside these classrooms today? And um, But I also know that this wasn't all caused by the pandemic. These problems were there long before the pandemic hit. But, oh, my goodness, the pandemic just uh, exacerbated it. Uh, you know, using the word exponentially grew, the problem might be accurate. Um, so um, what, what, we, um, what we know is um, more and more parents uh, struggle with difficult children. Uh, it's hard when you have high-achieving children or or, or you're in a, um, um, a, a very um, uh, comfortable environment. But when you have all sorts of, of, of variables in your life that are, are not providing the adult support you need, are not providing the parental support, um, uh, it is a, just a much more difficult environment. So we have to be real that these problems don't stay at home. They come into the classroom with the children. We've seen that in kindergarten classrooms across the state as children uh, did not get the social-emotional training, the socialization training before they entered kindergarten. They showed up this year totally unprepared to be in a classroom of 20 kids and have any kind of structured environment. I mean, that was a horrible scenario for our teachers across the state. How can we um, deal with a... Um, a social environment that needs support at the same time when we just want to focus on teaching kids, right? So so those days are gone when we can just focus on teaching kids. But we have to find a support system with our community partners. I heard this pretty, pretty well today, too. There is a good network of community partners throughout Missouri that um, uh, if we utilize them properly, fund them properly, they can be in and help us with some of the other social elements of helping enrich a child's uh, ability to learn. Um, it's not just the teacher's responsibility. It's not just the school's responsibility. So as a community, we've got to figure out how we come together as a full community to provide this level of support. Okay. Long response to a great question, but um, this is it's complex, right? Anytime you're dealing with human element, um, and uh, you know, and there, as parents, we all you know kind of believe we have our, our perfect recipe on how we deal with with our children, and uh, um, or at least we think we do, and and you know, it's so we've got a lot of individualized approaches that we need to find a way to harmonize a little bit.
All right, good last message there. Um, Mark Walker, the uh, chairman of the Blue Ribbon Commission for Teacher Recruitment and Retention, joining Show Me Today. I'm Elisa Nelson. We're talking about the next phase that deals with culture and climate in Missouri schools. Show me today. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile mile in my shoes. shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit helpfordebtors.org. That's helpfordebtors.org. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. Large groups of same species trees that rest in our parks and neighborhoods could be in danger from diseases, pests. They target these susceptible groups to capitalize on as many trees as possible. Robert Whitman is a landscape architect, and he's here with Cameron Connor to discuss the devastation that this can cause and ways to help prevent it. There's been research that has started to come out that too much uniform can actually be a bad thing for trees. However, so many people out there are so used to going to a park or going through a neighborhood 
and seeing that uniform, aesthetically pleasing look on how they like things, whether it's symmetrical, similar, all shaved, perfect. What is the traditional method on how neighborhoods and parks have traditionally put trees together like this? Great question. It's it, Traditionally, the goals have been all about uh, clarity in the aesthetics. And so traditionally, we've designed our neighborhoods with one type of tree. Part of that is just simplicity, right? You got a contractor going out, he's, yeah, he grabs 100 uh, trees and, and just puts them all on the ground in whatever arrangement that has been designed. But if it's all one tree, that's simple. And um, that looks nice. The challenge with that has been, as we've had uh, examples like Emerald Ash Borer that has come in and wiped out, is wiping out all of our ash. And historically, we also had the same issue with elms. And we did it at a big scale a hundred years ago, planting American elms everywhere because it was a fabulous tree, really durable and easy to plant and easy to to maintain over the long haul. But then Dutch elm disease came and wiped out all of the trees in our cities. I mean, we had 80% plus uh, American elms in our cities that just got wiped out. You'd think we would have learned then, but we didn't. We've uh, continued to plant a lot of ash uh, over the last 50 years that are dying now. And I've recognized that red maple in um, a good part of our state has been over way, way overplanted, and that's been the next rage of of the challenge. No major diseases or insects for the red maple yet, but we need to learn from our mistakes and and diversify our um, our communities and our parks and developments so that uh, if that big event does come, we haven't uh, put all our eggs in that one basket. Okay, perfect. And I'd love to piggyback off of what you were just mentioning, and you, you mentioned disease and pests. And that was going to be my next question is what, what is the main thing that's attacking these large uniform trees? Are we mainly talking about pests that are taking them over disease? Is it a mix of both? What, what about that? Yeah, we end up with both. It ends up, uh, we have insects in some cases and ash being the, the obvious one right now, where this emerald ash borer has come from China, uh, via mistakes. They believe it came from pallet wood landed in Detroit and then expanded from there over the last 20 years. And that insect is impacting ash trees very specifically. That's its preference. It has different conditions in its native environment. So it's it has predators and um, the conditions in that part of the world uh, are, are different. Our ash trees are not acclimated to this insect, and literally this insect has a free-for-all in all of our ash trees, and it's and it's wiping out any ash tree that's not being treated by an arborist or uh, um, just uh, an insecticide, basically, that would treat that tree. Other trees, uh, there are pines that are affected by uh, funguses and other blights. Um, the, the challenge is we don't know what's next, and... Um, there are many different species that are being affected by something, and we just don't know what's going to be our problem in the future, just like we didn't know about emerald ash borer. So having, uh, be, being consistent with um, diversity and having many different species in our communities will help uh, help us continue to have a good urban forest 
even though we may lose 5 or 10% of our plants due to whatever that next test is. For those of you just now listening, this is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with Robert Whitman. He is a landscape architect for Multi-Studio in the Kansas City area. We're talking about why the diversity of trees is so important so that an entire section doesn't get wiped out in a neighborhood or a park. This doesn't actually have to be an exact ballpark number or an estimate, but I'm hearing you say this and it's running through my head. And let's say theoretically, if in a neighborhood or in a park, you had hundreds, if not thousands of trees that were be, that were going to be demoralized by a fungus or a disease or pests. How exactly like what, what would the cost of that be to even replace that? Like, would it be it sounds kind of astronomical. Yeah, the cost can be epic. Part of the challenge is I know that in um, one community in particular, they did a full inventory of all of their civic trees, all of the street trees and some of the park trees that are planted in more organized parks. They they had over 50,000 trees that were counted, and one quarter of those trees were ash. Another quarter were red maple. Again, 50% of all that community's um, urban trees are just two different species. And, and we have hundreds and hundreds of species that we have at our, um, at our, you know, available to us. So the fact that we're just using those two for half of our trees is a problem. And we've learned a quarter of those trees are, are now perishing. So if you think about the cost of removal of a tree it could be, uh, $1,000, depending on the size, could be several thousand dollars for the size or location. Yeah, and 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 then there's the replanting of that tree. Um, so there's another 500 to to $1,000 potentially to replant that tree. So we're talking three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 for the loss of just one tree. You multiply that by tens of thousands of trees, and that number is astronomical. Beyond that, uh, even if you do replant a new tree, there's uh, the effect of that young tree is not providing all the benefits that the old tree was providing. And so we're losing some immediate benefit from an ecological standpoint, from uh, flooding and shade and heat island effect. All the benefits of large trees are being are, are, are being lost and we have to wait a generation or two before this next group of trees makes it to that age where they're providing that full benefit. What is the solution for this? So the solution is diversity, diversity, diversity. And uh, that is not just by species, but also by genus, which means um, if you think about the oak family, there's lots of different species of oaks. There's pin oaks, there's white oaks, there's bur oak, and um, but but all oaks are in one genus. And so, being diverse with our species and with our broader genus and families, uh, diversity is so large. And and if we think at the neighborhood scale, uh, maybe one block of a street for just unifying purposes and the clarity of the of the way that street looks. It is nice to have one species or one uh, look of species. It may be it may be that they're not all the exact same species, but they all have a similar look, form, texture, color. If the diversity falls into the entire neighborhood, allowing one street or one block to be one species, that, that's another way to handle it. But all in all, it's about lots of species diversity. It's good to have more diversity for uh, the different insects and, and different wildlife that depends on those different types of trees.
We're talking about why the diversity of trees is so important so that an entire section doesn't get wiped out in a neighborhood or a park or any other example like that. It seems like maybe a little bit of a controversial topic, so I'd love to get your opinion on it. It seems like there is a conversation around what should be native versus what should be non-native, and maybe if that helps or if it hurts. Where do you stand on that when it, in regard to trees? Well, I am very intentional about, so I'm starting off as a landscape architect and thinking in terms of landscape architecture. And so every project has a, a vision for the size, the form of what that, sh that tree needs to be to fit in that landscape. You know, it's important to have the right tree in the right place. You know, you have power lines, you're going to want to have a tree that stays well below power lines. Uh, if you have a narrow space, you want a more narrow tree. So thinking about the types of trees, the colors and everything is important. So when I develop a design, I start to look at all the, the, the basics of the trees. I'll call out some tree species to think about it. Then I look for, uh, instead of using if that tree species that seemed to make sense as a non-native, then I'll look for a true native that would be a good option for that same space. So um, I don't think it's important to be 100% native all the time. It's about trying to include as many natives into our landscapes as possible so that we're, we're again, being beneficial to our our, our friends in the ecosystem. Um, but the one key we absolutely need to be careful about is no invasive non-native trees like the Bradford pear or the ornamental pear trees that are getting out into our landscapes. So um, those are the absolute no-nos. Um, non-natives are okay, but invasive non-natives are terrible. Okay. Noted. All right. Well, once again, Robert, thank you so much for the informative and educational conversation, hopefully not only around the Kansas City area, but around Missouri and wherever else this is affecting, which I'm sure is practically all over the United States and many other places where they're starting to realize why planting specific and also diverse trees is such an important topic. Robert Whitman, he is a landscape architect for Multi-Studio in the Kansas City area. Robert, thank you so much for your time here on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Hey, you're very welcome. And for anyone who tuned in late, you can either find this topic or many more if you search Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri, wherever you get your podcast. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try all the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. 
For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Thank you for listening to Show Me Today. I'm Bill Pollack. Missouri hopes to up its game to help more foster children get adopted. Elisa Nelson is back, and she's with Representative Hannah Kelly, who championed an effort during the legislative session to help more families afford to adopt children looking for their forever home. Two years ago, it was Rob Descovo, a speaker. Um, he called me into the office and said, hey, I have an idea. Would you like to work with me on it? And of course, I said yes, and and here we are still having the privilege to continue to work on these important issues for our kids, and I'm very thankful. So uh, how was that law different from your effort this year? Tell me about the differences and what you're doing this time. So the first time, we structured the tax credit to expand from what was just for special needs to those to, um, to make it for every child, but we had a cap on the overall amount of money allowed to be spent in the budget, which was $6 million. 
And then we also had it where it was what's called non-refundable. Now, I always tell folks, if I wasn't in the legislature, I would want an explanation for what that means, right? So non-refundable tax credits mean that you can only redeem the tax credit according to your tax liability of the state. And anybody who pays attention to the adoption conversation knows that adoptions can unfortunately sometimes be incredibly expensive. And so what we've done here with our effort this year to expand on the Missouri Adoption Tax Credit is we have made the tax credit refundable, which means that up to $10,000 per child, you can redeem off of, you know, back from the state, non-recurring expenses for adoption adoption, non-reoccurring expenses for adoption, which means in summary, if I have a one-time expense for adopting Johnny, that can be applied and I can see a return on that expense that is not dependent on the amount of money that I do or don't owe the state for taxes. And so this year, what we did was we made it, we made it again, refundable and we removed the overall $6 million cap. For the amount of money spent here in Missouri, we are dedicated to making sure that kids who have found those forever families have every opportunity to hasten that process and get through the court process and get out into everyday life, not having to worry about um, getting stuck in the legal system as quickly as possible. Um, Because here in Missouri, we believe in life and we believe in the future, and our future is Missourians having a forever home. And I'm just very passionate about the issue, as you know, and appreciate you guys helping to get the good word out that if you are a Missouri family and you're seeking to adopt, that the state is there to back you up and to stand in support of your work to build our future. Were we um, reaching that $6 million cap? Is that why it was removed? Or I love I love that you asked that question um, because right now we are just starting to get stats in on um, on wh- on where we are with the expenditures for the um, for the tax credit that was passed two years ago. Now I don't have the numbers in front of me because, as you and I established before we went on the call, I'm out at the farm today and standing outside the goat pen. But um, it is roughly right under a million in the last uh, year, in the last fiscal year, that was spent on this credit. And so two things play into the equation of why we did what we did. Number one, again, we as a state are unequivocally dedicated to these kids and helping the families that are willing to give these kids a forever home. Number two, I think there's such a need for education on the matter. I learned early on in the legislature that nobody really likes to talk about this stuff. Nobody really likes to um, get down to the brass tacks to the importance of making sure these kids have forever homes. It's not fun sometimes. It sometimes can be very difficult conversations, right, in the day-to-day of the legislative work. And so education about the pathways by which we can help with this important issue is needed more than ever. And um, I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to see those numbers change. And another thing, another side part to the money piece that I'd like to add is very interesting fact that I confirmed with the department. For every child in the system, the state spends around $25,000 a year on that child, okay? Now, again, that's just numbers on a paper if it means we're doing what we need to by the child. But at the same time, as the legislature, 
we are responsible for these kiddos in our care. And I I know that if we can help a family up to $10,000 per child get through this process and get on the other side of adoption and get out of the court system, it's not only number one best in best interest for the child that needs to be adopted, but number two, it's being responsible and smart with taxpayer dollars. Um, I'd rather have a one-time expense of 10000 than to have a kid stuck in the system because a family didn't get the backup from the state needed to do what needs to be done, right, to, to finish the adoption, which happens all the time. I'd rather have that one-time expense than to have a kid stuck in a system for six, seven years, $25,000 a year or more, depending on the kid's needs and situation. And so I think that's a really interesting perspective to pair there, too, when we're talking dollars and expense and money. But we all agreed, obviously, concurrently between the House and the Senate, that taking the cap off was the right thing to do, because when it comes to our future, um, to our kids, we're all vested in making sure that we do right by them and, and making sure that we're there ready to support. And I think this is the biggest and the best way that we can do that when it comes to our kiddos waiting for adoption. As you and I discussed earlier, we have over 2,000 kids in the system waiting for adoption. Now, sometimes there are expenses that the foster system maybe can't cover depending on whatever situation, whether that be a lack of resources. You know, it's all very situation dependent. And I've seen all the different kinds over the last seven years. Every child has a unique story. Every child is unique. And there's no cookie-cutter box to these situations, unfortunately, that these kids find themselves having to walk through. And so, again, the hope is is that whether the child is in the foster care or the child being adopted privately, that families know here in Missouri we're here to support you, we're here to back you up, We're here to aid and assist in getting you through the system and out, resting assured that you've got financial backing um, when it comes to the end of the year and and in regards to tax conversations. You know, and I've been accused, because I support this, I've been accused of monetizing um, our children by supporting this. And I would say to that, that whoever, you know, I respect anyone's First Amendment right that looks at this effort as monetizing, but I completely disagree. It takes money to run my household. It takes money to support my family. It takes money for every Missouri household. It takes money for every Missouri family. And this is a responsible way that we are saying to our future, we believe in you and we want you to succeed. And government was never intended to be parents and government was never intended to create a stable environment for a child as well as a forever family can. And so basically that's why I am so excited that the House and the Senate agreed, huge in part to the help of Speaker Parker and Senator Huff and so many others on my children and families committee um, that helped push the issue at every opportunity that we were able to see this truly agreed finally passed and sent to the governor's desk um, and take that cap off and make it refundable to put more actions than words behind our principles, which I believe is always so important. Do you happen to know in this whole conversation what the average stay is of a child awaiting adoption? Well, the example that I can give you is my daughter was in the system for over five years. 
Wow. And and that's just one example out of many. I would love for folks to continue understanding and realizing the situation that is with our system and understanding everything that we've talked about because it's vital to our future success, I believe. But my biggest priority for the one year that I have left success in the legislature is going to be dedicated to the process because I believe that the process can and must always be made better. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Do you want a wild job? Missouri Department of Conservation is hiring forestry, resource management, and equipment operator staff in your area. As part of our wild team, you'll have the chance to work at our state's stunning conservation areas and recreational use sites, protecting and managing Missouri's diverse wildlife and nature resources. Whether you are a resource management mastermind or a seasoned equipment operator, we want you to join our team. Unleash your wild side. Apply today at jobs.mdc.mo.gov. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit helpfordebtors.org. That's helpfordebtors.org. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today. Navigating the legal system can be a daunting task. Today, Missouri Nets Bob Pretty and Farrah Fight from the Missouri Bar Podcast talk with Kelly Martinez from the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence and Katie Wessling, Managing Attorney for the Crime Victim Center in St. Louis. The topic, domestic violence and orders of protection. 
all part of the Missouri Bars program, Is It Legal To? So we wanted to start off with the basics. What is an order of protection, and is it the same thing as a restraining order? So, Farah, that's a great question. And, you know, as I begin here, just to let you know and for our listeners to know, we, we understand that as we're talking today, we are sort of speaking in language that assumes the person who has filed for the order of protection is the victim of the abuse. That is not always the case. There are times when litigation abuse is a factor and the person being filed against is actually the victim of abuse. But we just want to sort of set that expectation as we're talking today that when we talk about the person who filed the petition and refer to a petitioner, that we're talking about the person we're assuming is the victim. With that understanding, so an order of protection is a particular subset of the larger group of what restraining orders are. People think of restraining orders and they think of, you know, things like the people getting restraining orders to keep protesters away from the front of their business, that kind of thing. There are those kind of restraining orders, uh, but in the Missouri statutes, there are specific type of restraining order, which is called an order of protection. And that is specifically designed to help people who are in intimate partner violence relationships are being stalked or who have been sexually assaulted. Is there a level of abuse that has to be reached before an order of protection can be granted? Unfortunately, the law is a bit retroactive, so it's always a little easier in court if something has happened already. But the threat of harm is enough to petition and to request this assistance. So if someone is is afraid, we don't want to deter them from trying to seek help. And you can file for order protection. Some cases, others can file for order protection. But who normally is the ideal client for order protection? So with adult orders of protection, Chapter 455 of the revised statutes of Missouri sets out certain parameters that need to be met. So one is that to file for an adult order of protection, a person needs to be 17 or older. So adult in different areas of law is different, what age qualifies. But for this purpose, 17 or older is considered an adult. So that's the first threshold. The second is that there are certain relationship statuses that need to exist between the two parties. And these are both past and present forms. It can be someone that the petitioner is married to or was married to, lived with, has lived with, has a child in common with, in a dating relationship with. That is a helpful one for a lot of younger adults who, college students, for example, who don't fit the other criteria. There are, if you're related by blood or marriage, that works. You know, the example I always give is I could file one against my father-in-law, who's a lovely man. I would never need to do that. But I'm related to him through marriage to my husband, who is then related to his father by blood. So those relationships are the typical ones that we see. Kelly, did I miss any as I was going through that? No, you mentioned also that they could be, an order of protection can be filed, someone stalking you, or if you've been sexually assaulted by someone and you don't have to have any of those other types of relationships. Does it cost anything to file for order of protection? No, fair. There's no cost assessed to the petitioner, which is the person filing for the order of protection. The person who the order of protection is filed against is called the respondent. And does that person pay something, the respondent? Who pays for this service? Well, actually, court costs could be assessed against the respondent as the case goes on. So that's a really good question. 
Who decides the level of abuse that generates an order of protection? If, I, if I'm simply insulting someone or if I'm threatening someone, at what point does somebody say, okay, this is excessive and therefore the order needs to be issued? Well, under the statute, it's actually, you find the order protection law under chapter 455, in the Missouri revised statutes, and they, they list the types of abuse that can warrant this, Bob. And it's obviously the judge's discretion to determine to make this finding of abuse that was enough to order an order of protection. So it really would depend. Every case is different, and a judge is going to look at each case differently to determine if it rises to that level. Now, one thing we can say is that courts are typically looking for harm of some sort to occur. So, you know, sometimes people are in a situation where it's a bad breakup in the sense that it's annoying, they don't want to deal with this person anymore, but there's no real fear involved. Kind of an underlying question the judge is always kind of looking for in the evidence that's presented is, is there that fear, that real fear that some, someone will be hurt? What in your experience do you find in terms of the person who seeks an order of protection? How hard is it for them to admit that they need to apply for one and then find somebody who will file for them? There are a lot of people who get to the order of protection after a lot of, of work has been done talking with advocates, counselors, therapists. You know, the legal system is generally not the first thing someone turns to unless the incident was so incredibly bad that the police are involved right away. So there has generally been some emotional work done to determine that it's time to go do this. Now, the good thing about finding someone to file one for them, as you asked, is that you don't have to do that because this is one of the very few times in the law where the courts have forms made up for people. And if someone goes to the courthouse and needs to file a petition, they do not need a lawyer to help them do this. It is a fill in the blank form that they can do with the assistance of the clerks who are mandated to at least explain the paperwork to them. Are there ever instances where a lawyer might be appointed to help in an order of protection case? Or is it purely pro se in that you can go in, as you said, and complete the paperwork with just the information provided by the clerk? Fair, unless you are a, for instance, a guardian ad litem, and a guardian ad litem, sometimes called GAL, is an attorney who's appointed to represent children's best interests, like if there's child abuse or neglect alleged in a child order of protection or an adult order of protection, and a guardian ad litem would be appointed. But as far as for the adult parties, the court does not appoint any kind of an attorney for them, no. But there are many, many nonprofit organizations such as Legal Aid and Legal Services, Katie's organization, that provide free representation in orders of protection. What do you say to those who are in fear but think, ah, order of protection is just a piece of paper. How is that gonna protect me? Well, it's absolutely not just a piece of paper. It's kind of what I call a legal unicorn because it's very interesting because it's a civil order that has criminal remedies. And so it's it definitely has these type of protections that are far from just a piece of paper, for sure. If I get a piece of paper, the, the piece of paper, the legal protections, does anything come with that? Do I get a police officer sitting outside my house, for example? <laughs> How is that really protecting me? Here's the way I like to explain that, is that it's important to think of it as this is a tool, 
it's a tool that does certain things. Is it a tool that actually somehow magically prevents someone from trying to hurt you? No, it's not that kind of a tool. It is a tool that while it may not have a police officer sitting outside your door, it does mean that if you call the police and say, I have an order of protection, that automatically makes it a priority call. So it will affect police response. It is a tool that can be very effective among the class of people where the abuser is someone who is not someone who thinks of themselves as a criminal, right? So you get professionals, you know, I've been in cases where, you know, the respondents, an ER doctor, something like that, not someone that people think is your typical abuser. And they don't want any problems. They don't want to go to jail. So if you have this order and they know that if you call the police, they run some risk here, um, it can be very effective in those situations. So it's really a matter of thinking about your individual situation, the problem you are trying to solve, and is this a tool that, that will help with the problem you're trying to solve? I would guess that many instances of abuse happen not during normal business hours. So nights and weekends, when can a person file for order of protection? Do they have to wait for those, you know, Monday through Friday court business hours to go to the clerk's office to do it? Or is there a, is there a remedy for those after hours scenarios? In the statute, it does provide for situations like that because we know abuse, as you said, doesn't just happen nine to five. If you can get it, you know, anytime that the court is open, and then after like holidays, um, weekends, after hours, there needs to be policies in place for survivors to get orders of protection. Now you can find that sometimes on the court website. So you can go to the court's website and find out their policy for after hours orders of protection. You can call advocacy programs around the state. There's advocates all over the state, thousands of advocates who can also provide that information. And then they can also call the sheriff's office or law enforcement to find out policies. Because many times, like for instance, after hours, you can file for an order of protection at a sheriff's office. More topics from the Missouri Bar are available at MissouriLawyersHelp.org slash Is It Legal To? This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today.